As we look at Ecclesiastes 3 this evening, um, we approach a, a difficult passage, at least in, in my mind, um, and in some ways the, the timing of it is, is difficult, although it's providential. We, we know it's not coincidence um, that the Lord has us studying this passage at this time. Um, but in it, we will look at the sovereignty of God. Uh, and in it can be some difficult truths to accept and to trust. Um, but it is God's truth. And, and I say the timing is difficult uh, just in light of the pains in which we are experiencing as a family. Um, obviously, the pains in which we are, we are uh, suffering with the Lefflers. Um, with the Hawkins, um, even in hearing tonight of Chloe uh, and Emmanuel, and we just hear, it seems, it's just suffering after suffering. Uh, and now we approach a passage in which tells us that God is sovereign through it all. And that may be difficult to hear, and it may be difficult uh, to accept that truth. And so, let me pray as we begin that God would soften our hearts, that we would see His truth uh, for what it truly is, um, and that we would trust God and worship God in this time. Lord God, as we approach Your Word, God, we do so God, with broken hearts, as we've been broken for some time, uh, we do so humbly, Lord, knowing, uh, God, that you hold all truth, that you are truth. Lord, I pray that as we study your word tonight, God, you'd give us clarity and understanding. I pray, God, that we would not be frustrated or confused, but, God, that we'd be comforted by who you are. Lord, I pray that we would worship you. And God, I pray that you would be with me, your servant, in my own weakness this evening. God, I need you. And I pray, Lord, I would not get in the way of your message and your truth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work on, in our hearts, in our minds, give us understanding. And may we worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read the passage for us uh, before we begin. I'll read Ecclesiastes 3 in its entirety. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. 
Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, I'm sure many of you, if, if not all of you, have experienced at least a, a, a sad day in your life at some point. Um, some maybe a, a deeper sadness uh, and sorrow than others, uh, and, and maybe uh, even some more recent than others. But I would bet that everyone has, has either gone through a difficult trial at some point, or at the very least has witnessed someone else going through a difficult trial. And it is in those moments that we may ask, why? It is in those moments maybe that we wonder, where is God? And we may see the brokenness in this world, and we wonder what it all means. Isn't God supposed to be good? Didn't He create a good world for us to live in? When God created the world, he said it was good. And indeed it was. And then sin entered the world and has cursed our world ever since. And we feel the effects of sin and its curse every day. And we certainly can enjoy the things of this world, yes, but, but through it all we see the effects of sin tainting every aspect of life. How should we view life? amidst a broken and a cursed world. I think Solomon here says that we can view it in one of two ways. We can view life in this cursed world as meaningless, as he's been saying in the last couple chapters, or we can trust God's sovereignty amidst a cursed world. And there's really a lot that Solomon is saying in this chapter. Uh, we, We could spend a lot of time here uh, but as we are trying to keep this pace of one chapter a week, um, we're really just going to focus on that one aspect tonight, and that is trusting God's sovereignty in a cursed world. That's where our focus will be. Do you trust God's sovereignty? Do you trust God's sovereignty? When you feel the effects of this cursed world, can you trust that God is sovereign? Now, what does that mean for God to be sovereign? Maybe you, we, we say that a lot, you hear it a lot, maybe we don't really understand what it means. Uh, I, I hope maybe that this will help. It, this might just confuse you even more. Uh, but A.W. Pink uh, defines it this way. He, <laughs> he is pretty dense. But uh, not dense and dumb. As in, like, what he writes is like it's, it's meaty. Um, but he, he says it this way. Quote, as far as what God being sovereign means. Quote, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, None can hinder him. End quote. In short, God is in complete control, right? In his sovereignty, he is in complete control. And this doctrine of God's sovereignty is one of the most comforting truths and attributes of God, I think. While at the same time, it is one of the most mysterious, confusing, and as a result, by some, it's the most hated attributes 
of God. Because they become frustrated. When you see and you feel and you experience the effects of this cursed world, do you become frustrated at the meaninglessness, at the futility of life? Or are you drawn to the throne of God and you trust in His sovereignty? Well, tonight we're going to be challenged to look at two areas in which we ought to trust the sovereignty of God amidst the cursed world. First, we'll look at trusting God's sovereignty over life's events. And then we'll look at trusting God's sovereignty over judgment. Alright, so first, trusting God's sovereignty over life's events. Verses 1 through 15. I, where's Isaac? Isaac is bigger now, right? You see that? And, and I got some subpoints back for you guys, okay? I know you guys, you guys were missing the subpoints, okay? Alright, so first, 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 trusting God's sovereignty over life's events, we see... Every event has been divinely appointed by God. Every event has been divinely appointed by God. Now this chapter begins with a poem. And maybe one of the most famous poems in all of Scripture. It is quoted often. In fact, I think... Oh no, it's not here. It's later in this chapter. We have it on our bulletin board out there. Um, it, it, it's... It was made into a song by a secular band that became very popular. Uh, it, it, it's very, very well known. Maybe as I was reading it, you're like, oh yeah, this sounds familiar. Like you know of this part in Ecclesiastes. And in it, it contains 14 pairs of life events. And each pair is a mirism. A, a, a mirism is, is contrasting two complete opposites and it includes everything in between. Okay, that's, that's what he's doing here. And, and it's important to understand that in these pairs of opposites that he says, Solomon, or, or whoever it is that, that wrote this poem, is dis- describing life. He's not prescribing life. And, and I just want to, to make that difference. He's describing it, not pres- prescribing it. For instance, in verse 3, when he says, A time to kill and a time to heal, he's not prescribing, saying, sometimes you should kill, and sometimes you should heal. There's a time for both. He's not prescribing life. These are not prescriptions. These are descriptions of life. In this poem, he describes both the joys and the hardships of life, and everything in between. And Solomon's point is that through all of it, we can see that God is at work. That God is sovereign. That God rules over it. That God is in control. He is sovereign over birth and over death. He is sovereign over weeping and laughing. Over silence and speaking. Over love and hate. Over war and peace. Over all... The question is, will you acknowledge... That God is sovereign over it all. Every event has been divinely appointed by God. In your greatest joys in life, it was appointed by God. That means our greatest accomplishments, that we get joy in our accomplishments, they're not a result of our hard work and our skill, but it's ultimately a result of God's grace and blessing. And you may argue, well, I have worked hard, and and, and I do have skill. Yes, and it was appointed by God that you would. And it's by His grace that you do. And even our greatest experiences in which we get joy in, our greatest experiences in life that we enjoy, we enjoy it because God has divinely appointed that we would have those experiences. And indeed, we should enjoy these gifts from God. Solomon's point is not that we must reject all gifts given to us by God. No, God, He desires to give us good gifts. And He has given us good gifts, and we ought to enjoy them. But Solomon's point is that we must acknowledge that it comes from God's hand. And so look back. Look back at the joys of life and realize that was divinely appointed by God. 
There was no mistake. Solomon's point is also that in the same way, even your greatest sufferings are appointed by God. And this is the part of God's sovereignty that can be confusing and that can be frustrating. Most of us can accept and get behind the fact that every good thing in our life is part of God's perfect plan. Yes! But can you also accept that God would even allow suffering and hardship in your life? Not even allow it, but that is part of His perfect plan. That He has appointed that season in your life. Just as every joy in your life has been part of God's perfect plan and part of His control, so is every pain and suffering part of God's plan and part of His control. I think the confusing part is when we believe that it is always God's will for us to be happy. Do you realize that nowhere in Scripture does it promise that we will live a happy life here on earth or that God is always seeking for us to be happy? It says that He's always seeking and accomplishing our best if you are in Christ. But our happiness is not always what's best. In fact, sometimes what's best is hardship. And it is trial. And it is pain. When we experience a hardship or trial, it it, it is not that God has lost control. It is not that God is no longer good. It is not that God has forgotten this. It is that God has sovereignly allowed this to happen. But would God even allow an evil thing to happen? Would He even allow sin to happen? Something evil? Would God allow evil? Yes. I just I always go back to the story of Joseph. If you know me, I love to go back there. Um, but I couldn't help think of it in this in this light, in this manner. Do you guys remember the story of Joseph? Right? He's just chilling, loving being spoiled by his daddy, right? So he's got this great old coat and he's walking around, his brothers don't like it, so they sell him into slavery, lie to their dad saying that he was eaten by wolves or whatever, and then so now he's he's in the slave market. Uh, but then he, 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 he gets into Potiphar's house and he's doing great. He loves him and he, everything's wonderful. And then Potiphar's wife's got to ruin everything. And it's like, ooh, Joseph, sleep with me. And he's like, no, get behind me, woman. And then, but she keeps trying and trying. And he keeps saying no. And then finally, like, he, try, he runs away, but she rips his tunic. And now she's like, oh, I can, I can get him now. Oh, guards, look, look, it's Joseph's clothes. <laughs> and then, so then the, the Potiphar's like, what? What are you talking about? Go to jail. So now he goes to jail. He didn't even do anything. He was just being a good boy. And then he's in jail, and then, right, so now it's just up and down. It's so bad. And then he, uh, you know, the other, the baker and the wine guy, they're all there, the dreams. And, and through God, he, 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 he tells him what the dreams mean. And, and he was right. And he's like, don't forget me. You know, he's going out of prison. Oh, don't worry, I won't. But he did. And then two years later, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you about this guy in jail, right? Because cause the king, he had like uh, uh, this dream about seven years plenty. Okay, I'm getting way too many details. The point is this, right? Okay, the point is this, right? Like all these bad things that happened to Joseph. Anyways, long story short, you should read it. End of Genesis. Where am I going with this? At the end. <laughs> thank you, sorry. At the very end, his brothers and him they have this other like he's scared that now that their dad's dead like he's gonna like get mad at him and Joseph's response okay here this is what I'm trying to get at Joseph's response at the very end when he says these words he says what you talking to his brothers what you meant for evil what was the evil that they meant selling them into slavery right like like telling their dad that wolf ate them and like you're done we don't want anything to do with you you're gone that was evil what you meant for evil brothers God meant it for good you see that what you meant for evil God meant it for good God allowed that evil to happen he allowed those brothers to to choose evil but God meant it for good it was part of his plan God's plan 
That does not mean that God is evil. It doesn't mean that God commits evil. There is no evil in God whatsoever. He is perfect, and He remains perfect always. But in His holiness, in His sovereignty, He allows man to make choices that are evil, and He uses it for His purposes and to fulfill His perfect will. Does that mean that man is not responsible for his actions? That we are just robots? Just doing like God's will? Like, oh, beep, boop, bap, 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 zero, one, one, zero, one. No! Man is still responsible and accountable for his actions. We choose to act. We choose to sin or not sin. And all of that is part of God's sovereignty. What? Like, it's mind-blowing. I... I, I I'm not even here to suggest that I fully understand that. Like, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Like, but that's okay. Don't be frustrated if you don't fully understand it either. There are some things in which we will not completely understand or even understand at all on this side of eternity. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. And I think this may be one of those secret things. And I'm okay with that belonging to the Lord. Because what I know is this. God is completely sovereign. God is completely good. God is completely wise. God is completely powerful. And I completely make choices. And I make evil choices. And somehow that is part of God's perfect plan without Him being or having a trace of sin. He allows evil in this world. He allows hardship and sorrow in this world. And yet He is good and He is perfect and He is in control. And how do I know that these things are true? Because His Word says so. And His Word is without error. How do all these things work together? I don't know. But I don't need to know. And let's not miss the point, really, of what's being taught here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Every event, from the biggest to the smallest, has been divinely appointed by God. Everything. There is not a thing in all the universe that has not been appointed by God. Isn't that crazy? Let me read Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Did you hear that? Now people often misquote this. They often add knowing at the end. Let me read it again, maybe how people usually quote it, adding the word knowing at the end. Sometimes maybe you, you, you've heard it said like this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing. It's not what it says. It just says, fall to the ground apart from your father, period. It doesn't say knowing. I mean, it'd be true. It'd be true that the father knows, but it'd be a different emphasis. If we added the word knowing at the end, it would be like, God knows everything that happens. It's true. And that is wonderful. But I think it's actually a deeper meaning here. He says, fall to the ground apart from your father. He said, not two birds will be sold for a penny apart from your father. Apart from your father appointing it. He's saying, not one bird will fall to the ground apart from the father appointing it. You see, like even a bird being sold in a marketplace for half a penny is appointed by God. Like that small little thing. So then what's the implication? Well, you keep reading. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now we get to the knowing. And then keep reading. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You're more valuable than the sparrows. God appoints every event in your life. And He knows you intimately. And He cares for you deeply. Like, do you see that? Is that not beautiful? That he appoints every little part. And he knows you. And he cares for you. Now, what does this poem teach us back in Ecclesiastes? 
that God is in complete, sovereign control of all things. And He has a time and He has a purpose for everything. Will you trust in God's sovereignty? In the good times and the bad. Isn't that a song? In the good times and the bad. Do you trust that He is on His throne? It's easy to trust He's on His throne when it's good. But in the good times and the bad, do you trust that He's on His throne? Well, if God is truly on His throne, then that means that He is also worthy of worship. No matter the season, no matter the circumstance, if He's on His throne, then He deserves our worship. Which brings us to our next point. Our next sub-point. Okay, Zephan, there you go. Next sub-point. Every event ought to drive us to worship God. Every event ought to drive us to worship God. Solomon now chooses to shift his attention from viewing life under the sun to viewing life with God at the center of it. He says in verse 11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. That's the verse I was referring to earlier, right? We hear that a lot. It's great. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Amen. And he's summing up the poem and is saying that God is the one who has appointed these things. He has appointed these times. He has appointed these activities. He has appointed these seasons. This is all part of God's perfect, ordained plan. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, I think a lot of people focus on that first part. But we need to notice that last part as well. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We need to come to grips with the truth that God's ways are greater than our ways. We so desperately want to know God's plan. We so desperately want the answer to our question, Why? Why would God allow this to happen? Why now? Why him? Why her? How is God good in this? Are the questions we ask. God does not owe us an answer to this. And even if he did answer us, we we would not be able to come close, I think, to grasping the depths of God's purpose. It's in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see that? Even in the book of Habakkuk, God responds to his prophet, essentially telling him that even if I were to explain to you all that I was doing, you would not understand. You wouldn't even understand if I explained it all. So asking the question, why, to God, it does not gain us anything. For even if we were to receive the answer, we would still be left just utterly confused. Instead of seeking the answer to our why, we ought to be seeking worship to God. We ought to worship Him. We need to understand that He is a holy God whose ways are greater than ours. No matter our circumstance, we ought to be on our knees worshiping Him. A big theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is the limited knowledge of man. We've already seen a little bit of that. The limited knowledge of man. We have to understand who we are compared to the Holy God. We have to understand even, even just our vantage point is, is down low, right? Like imagine playing chess. Some of you guys play chess. Mike, yeah, Mike, yeah you guys are so happy. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, see? Okay, we got some chess people. When you play chess, oftentimes, now, Micah, please, if I'm wrong, like don't correct me right now and, and be like, well, actually, the Russian way to blah, blah, like, please, just, just, okay, it's just an illustration, okay? When, when you play chess, like usually, you play like 
from the top down. You look at it from the top down, right? Like, you get a vantage point of the whole board. It would be weird to, like, play down here and look at the pieces from, like, afar and, like, hidden or, like, Harry Potter when, like, they go on the piece. Like, what are you doing, right? Like, like you don't play chess like that. You play it from way up high, right? And in a way... In a, in a very small way, I guess. It's like it's like God. Like we try to move the chess pieces around in our lives. Like, oh, I think this is a good move. Oh, I think this is best. And we don't know. We can't see the whole board. We can hardly even see the piece in front of us. And God is up here, and He has the vantage point of the whole board. He's made the whole board, right? Or or, or like a maze. Right, how many of you guys have ever done like a corn maze or like a hay maze or something, right? Okay, some of you guys, yeah. And you go through, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know where to go. And like, you just keep like walking around, going to dead ends. And then for some of them, there's a lookout point, right? Like you go up these steps, like this tower, and you can go in. So what? So you can see the whole thing. Now, I never want to go up there because I'm always like, that's cheating. That's lame. Let's just get through this thing, right? But if you want, like you get lost or something, you can go up and, and, and you can see everything, right? It's the same thing. Our vantage point is, 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 is so minuscule of our life. Like our vantage point is so small. God's vantage point is infinite on account of He He's appointed all things. God has a divine purpose and plan for every event in life. And that plan is perfect. And that plan has been set before the foundations of the world. God is sovereign. And He is ruling over that plan. That He's already established. And it already is perfect. And then here we are. In Pleasant Hill, California. In 2023. In our own personal life. Just me. Challenging God in His perfect sovereign plan that He established before even light existed. But then let's fast forward to 2023 where here we are in Pleasant Hill, California in our own personal life saying, uh, uh, wait a second, God, I think you might have messed this one up maybe? <laughs> no. God has established His plan. Now where do we fit into that plan? But we fit into it by that we are made for His purpose. We are made for His glory. We are made to fear and to worship God as He gets to in verse 14. We so easily become frustrated with life. We so easily question God's purpose and His sovereignty in life's events. We so easily become dissatisfied in life. Why? Because our eyes are not set on Him. And when our eyes are set on the things of this world, when we are seeking satisfaction in these things, we will always be dissatisfied until we come to the realization that we will only be truly satisfied in Him. And we will continue to be frustrated when we demand answers from God in which we are not meant to understand on this side of eternity. Rather, let the fear of God and let the burdens and the frustrations of this world drive you to the throne of God. Realize there is more to this life than our wants and our desires. There is God who is on His throne who deserves our worship. Will you worship? Will you give the worship and the praise do His name. And we love Romans 8.28, do we not? Mm-hmm. We should, right? Yes! You go, Micah? Yes! Of course, we should! It's a very comforting verse. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We love it. And we should. But are we ready to admit that what is implied in this verse is that that means there will be hardship. There will be peril. There will be suffering in which He will work together for our good. Do you trust God in that? Do you trust God in what He says in Romans 8.28? Do you trust that He is good always? Christian, do you trust that He has what is best for you? Always! We live in a cursed 
broken world. And I know that some of you have experienced deep, deep pain and sorrow. And by no means does this minimize that. By no means does this belittle that. What this ought to do is, is not show you how little your pain should be. This should not just say, oh, just, just get over it. That's not what this is. But this ought to show you how mighty and how praiseworthy God is. And while we live in a broken world that is tainted with sin, and while we feel the effects of sin every day, know that this is not the end. But Christ has entered into this sinful, broken, decaying world. Christ entered into pain and suffering. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the world. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what Christ has done for us? This ought to lead you to worship God. To draw near to His throne and worship Him. Fear God. See His complete, holy sovereignty over all things. And fear Him. For when we fear God, we realize there is nothing else to fear. How will you view life's events? Will you become angry at God? Will you doubt God? Will you become prideful in your own ways? Or will you worship God? Will you bow your knee in submission to Him? Will you draw near to His throne? Will you cast your burdens at His feet? Will you sing, Will you worship Him? So first we see trusting God's sovereignty over life's events. Our next and last main section, this one's shorter, is trusting God's sovereignty over judgment, verses 16 through 22. 1st subpoint in this is that God is sovereign over the injustice in this world. God is sovereign over the injustice in this world. Solomon's now looking at life under the sun and realizes... There is no true justice in this world. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Even in the courtroom, which at the very least is the one place there should be justice, even there, there's injustice. And not to bash our judicial system, but to an extent, that's still true today, right? Sadly, there are times when the rich and famous are excused of heinous acts of crime, innocent people sentenced to prison, guilty people walk free. And we see injustice in the world and we cry out for justice, right? We want justice. Even little kids, they want justice. What do you hear them say? But that's not fair. That's not fair. And they say it enough times, not fair, not fair. Eventually, what what do you hear parents say? Well, life isn't fair. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But why isn't it? Why isn't life fair? We long for what is fair. We long for justice. We long for justice because we are made in the image of God and God is a just God. 
Now, the question here that we present in Ecclesiastes is how can God truly be in control? How can he truly be sovereign when there's so much evil in this world, when there's so much injustice, when the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering? How is God in control? Is he still in control? Is he truly sovereign? Well, he answers it pretty quickly in the next verse, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. In God's perfect timing, God will judge rightly. Nothing is hidden from God, and nothing will be overlooked by God. Every thought, every action, every activity, every sin is accounted for by God, and He will judge. The temptation is to look at the sin in the world, to to see the wicked get away with evil, to see the, the righteous suffer, and to think that God is not sovereign. We must trust the fact that God in His perfect timing will judge rightly according to His perfect justice. But the question I want to present to you today is how will God deal with your sins? I want to personalize it in that way. How will God be just with your sins? Now, there are some natural consequences of our sins that we will experience today. And really, this ought to drive us to repentance. and It ought to drive us to pursue godly living. Because living for Christ is a blessing. But one day, we will meet our Maker. And when you stand before God, the righteous judge, He will deal with your sin rightly and justly. But there is hope for the Christian. Let's not forget Romans 8.1. Remember Romans? Do we need to go back to Romans? You remember Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John 2.1 Jesus is our advocate, Christian. He is our defense attorney. He is the one who defends us in court. And who is he? Who is this Jesus? It says in 1 John, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous. And so in the courtroom of God, when our charge is listed against us and we are seen as guilty, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate, our, our defense attorney. He says, I died for this one. He has my righteousness. Therefore, since we are in Christ Jesus, we face no condemnation. But for those who continue to reject Christ, He is not your advocate. Instead, you you have no advocate. You have no defense attorney. You stand before God with only you as your defense. And you do not have His righteousness. All you have with you is your own righteousness, which according to Romans 3 says you have none. God is a just God. And in His timing, He will deal with you rightly. So if you're not a Christian, I urge you to repentance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means that Paul is condemnation. And that is what is upon you, non-Christian. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ, the righteous Savior. He is your hope for salvation. There's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we see that God is sovereign over death in this world. God is sovereign over death in this world. Solomon continues to look at the effects of this cursed world and he directs his attention now to death. And he starts by comparing humans to animals. I don't know if you caught that when he says beasts. He's not saying that humans and animals are equal in every way. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Humans are made in the image of God. God the Son added humanity unto Himself and He died for humanity. We have a soul and we have a special love from God. Humans and animals are not the same. But what is the same, what Solomon's getting at, is that death awaits us both. 
even with all the advantages that humans have over animals, death is still the great equalizer. And we can't escape it. While death is a direct effect of sin, God is still sovereign. And He's still in control over it. When death occurs, I believe it is the greatest loss that we can experience. The loss of a life. As in those times in which we may question the sovereignty of God, is God truly in control? How can He be? And this passage reminds us that yes, even through death, God is sovereign over it all. We cannot add or take away a single day of our lives according to the perfect sovereign plan of God. And sadly, we will experience death in this life. Eventually, the death of our own life, unless the Lord comes back first. And in the meantime, the death of loved ones. And while death is the greatest effect of sin that we may experience here on earth, Scripture is clear that Christ changes everything. Imagine the scene of when Christ died. I mean, imagine the confusion of the disciples. Right? When we go through a trial, let's say especially the loss of a loved one, like the confusion begins. The questions begin. Imagine when Christ died. How, how confused the disciple must have been. Imagine the questions. How can this be? How did this happen? What, what, what were the last three years? What, what, was it a trick? What, like, what do we do now? All had seemed lost. All had seemed wasted. All had seemed wrong. And indeed it was wrong. The Son of God died. There is no greater wrong than that. And indeed, beloved, when you have lost a loved one, when when you experience death in this world, it is wrong. It is the result of the fallen world. But even in the greatest wrong in history, even in the most unjust death in history, God was sovereign and God was doing His good. In those three days before Christ rose from the dead, if you were to tell the disciples that, that God has the greatest good coming out of this death, then they would have thought you were crazy. But God was in control. And Christ rose from the dead, conquering over sin and death. And if you are in Christ, you share in His victory over death. Christian, one day you will die, but you will be raised with Him and brought into new life. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Listen to this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hate death. I hate it. And I hate that sin has brought it into this world. But I praise God that He is sovereign over death. And I praise God that He has conquered sin and death. And I praise God that death has no grip on me. God is victorious. And we too share in His victory. If you are indeed in Christ. We live in a broken and a cursed world. And we feel the effects of that. Maybe we've felt it closer to home even more recently. And we feel it in life's events. 
We feel it in the injustice in this world. We feel it in the death in this world. But even so, God is sovereign through it all. And He never stops being sovereign. And he never stops being in control. How do you respond to the difficulties and the pains in life? Do you become frustrated at the meaningless, at the futility of life? Do you become frustrated at the confusion and the mysteries of life? Or are you drawn to the throne of God and you trust in His sovereignty? Without God, life under the sun, it is meaningless. It is futile. It is vanity of vanities. And sometimes that reality becomes more apparent as we face life's events, as we face injustice, as we face death. But with God and in Christ, everything changes. Life is no longer meaningless. Life is no longer futile. Life is no longer in vain. But we know with certainty that we worship a God who is sovereign, who is seated on His throne, and who is worthy of worship. Will you worship God even in the midst of a cursed world? Will you trust in the sovereignty of God even in the midst of a cursed world? There are many things we will not have an answer to. But this we do know. God is sovereign. God is good. God is holy. God is perfect. God is all wise. God is all powerful. God always has what's best for His children. God is just. God's timing is perfect. And God is always worthy of our worship and praise. Do not focus on what is not meant to be revealed today. Do not focus on what you do not know. Focus on what has been revealed. Focus on what you know to be true. And give God the worship that He is due. Let's pray. Well, God, You are worthy of all worship and praise. God, we thank You that You are a God who is sovereign, who is completely sovereign and in control. Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in that. I pray that we would trust that. I pray that it would lead us to worship You. Lord, I pray for those in here, maybe who are suffering, who are hurt, who are confused. I pray, God, that You would minister to their hearts, that they would find comfort in Your Son. Lord, I pray for the Leffler family. I pray for the Hawkins family. I pray for Chloe. I pray for Emmanuel. I pray for these that are suffering in their own ways. Draw them to Yourself, God, that they might see Your goodness, Your glory, that they may worship You and trust You. God, you are good. And we give you all glory and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.